Welcome to another fabulous episode of the Free Money Podcast. Sloan here, and on this episode, we are joined by Delilah Rothenberg of the Predistribution Initiative. Her work focuses on reimagining investment structures to promote sustainability through stronger long-term alignment between asset managers and their clients, which is something we talk about a lot here on the Free Money Podcast. We talked to her about pre-distribution, and you should really listen to hear how she defines it, but briefly, it's an approach that aims to prevent income inequalities from occurring in the first place, rather than smoothing them out via tax incentives and various other benefits later on down the chain. We also talked to her about some of the things that sustainability-minded investors should take care to think about, like the compensation of their fund managers and the many ethical issues that come from increasing their holdings in private assets. We also touch on the consolidation of corporate power and tangible steps the asset owner community can take to invest with confidence in the future. That conversation starts about 13 minutes and 45 seconds into this podcast, but keep listening if you want to hear me and Ashby talk about a bunch of news that ties right into this discussion. And keep the podcast going after the interview for answers to questions from listeners like you and our signature garden tip. If you'd like to ask a question in an up upcoming episode, just write us, freemoneypod at gmail.com or go to freemoneypodcast.org and hit the very, very sexy, high-tech, svelte, wonderfully designed Ask a Question button. By the way, if you're enjoying these podcasts, could you please rate us five stars on your podcast platform of choice? It really helps us get the word about free money out to a broader audience, which may literally change someone's life. I understand if you'd rather keep all the free money goodness to yourself, but remember, we're trying our best to build an inclusive future for money management, and that means spreading the wealth. That's it for me. Until the other side of the disclaimer, take it away, Sharkbait. Ahoy, free money podcast listeners. I'm Sharkbait Buckley, the Disclosure Pirate, and I'm here to set ye straight about what's going on with this here show. Sloan Ortel works for Invest Vegan LLC, a New York registered investment advisor. Ashby Monk works for Stanford University, Adapar, Future Proof, Long Game, and various startups. All opinions expressed by either Sloan or Ashby are entirely their owns, and do nay reflect the opinions of their crew or any company. Clients who invest vegan may maintain positions in securities and strategies discussed in this podcast. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Invest Vegan and its representatives are properly licensed or exempted, and a client agreement has been executed. Arr. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talk. Here comes the money. Welcome to the Free Money Podcast. It's where we give you the Brooklyn Bay Area connection about institutional investing you desperately crave. Let's unlock some capital for more creative purposes. Ashby, what do you think? I love it. And I, I appreciate that we, we're no longer consensus building. We're connection making. Ah, uh, yeah. Did you catch true. that? That's true. I, did, I, I didn't catch that, but I guess now. I appreciate uh, how you change our slogans just on the fly. Yeah. yeah and you know, I mean. That's the lack of consensus in our consensus building. <laughs> This is a dictatorship. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that like any good brand needs to be changed constantly for no particular reason. Absolutely. I mean, you you've know, seen the, like those evolution of logos over <laughs> decades, you know, you're yep. like, what the hell were they thinking back then? And then, it, th then they go back all the way to the beginning 50 years later. It's all a cycle. 
Yep. Yep. Yeah. So oh. we'll be back to, to, to something in, you know, in 10 or 15 years, we'll get the old school, the retro throwback free money, uh, branding. Yep. Yep. Um, and this is a, this is a Monday. So this is a little bit of a downer. And hey, normally we're doing these things on Fridays. This is a Monday. Kind of, <laughs> somebody's got the case of the Mondays. I mean, you know, the Mondays, they do sneak up on you at this time of year. I mean, it's like we're heading into a quarter end. We're taping this on, on March 28th. So, uh, you know, totally chill time. Uh, for everybody. Nobody, <laughs> for everybody. Yeah, nobody's like fighting to get sales closed. <laughs> Sloan, if you'll permit me. Um, I got off the top here. Off the top. Oh, my phone's ringing, which is very inappropriate. Uh, yeah, I'm going to shut that down. Um, yeah, we'll do Can we delete it? No, we can't delete it, can we? Uh, we never so off the top, I know that most um, most programs put uh, these sorts of things at the end after, you know, so that people don't have to suffer through them. But we're going to I'm going to put this up front, which is a um, very dear friend of mine, um, Lori Chase Davis, passed away. And I want to acknowledge her on the pod because she was astounding. And so mm-hmm. I'm inspiring up. And inspiring. And I've been sitting on this for a few months. I, I wasn't ready to talk about it. It was like too painful. Um, but I think I want to talk about it now because in part, she inspired this podcast. And so I want to acknowledge mm-hmm. that. So for just give me a couple minutes to tell you about her. Yeah. Ce- celebrate her. Um, we built the Sovereign Investor Institute together at Institutional Investor. Over the course of about six or seven years, we probably traveled to 30 cities around the world, many different countries. And she was like a super host. She was like super excited about hosting kick-ass events around sovereign funds. But like that doesn't give you even a sense of who she was. Before she joined II, she was a performer. She did stand-up. She was on the mm. Ryan show. What? Uh, for Rizzle. And That's amazing. She was one of the cats in a show called Cats. What? Uh, wow. For real? Maybe that was the traveling cats, but she was a cat. Um, and <laughs> We're very pro cat here, so that's, we are. that's a big deal. Yeah. And Lori brought something really astounding to to pensions. And I know like most people don't set out to be conference organizers, but when you see someone do something at a level of like absolute excellence, you can't help but like be in awe. And I think mm-hmm. anybody listening to this this pod will be like, oh, I remember Lori. They will remember this person that had mm-hmm. kind of like the craziest energy. The way I would describe Lori, I've been thinking about this, is like that feeling when you've had a couple of beers and your friends walk into the pub. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, Lori, oh, shit. Lori was the non-alcoholic version of that feeling. She would do that to just about every room. And people probably don't know as much about this, but she was in part the inspiration for this podcast. In fact, I believe the Dear Ashby segment was an idea that came out of her mouth. And part of that was because she was always trying to bring comedy into this world of pensions and sovereigns and make it more approachable, maybe because Mm -hmm. she came from the world of comedy and was like, this is pretty boring. (laughs) <laughs> so if you guys could make it a little bit more funny, but because we traveled around the world together, she would always be give, give me notes on like my, my talks and moderating. And she would always tell me to be funnier. In fact, at one point we would have these bets 
to see how many times I could add funny words into like pretty serious topics like <laughs> pension fund risk management. Like if you can work in, you know, Star Wars quotes, like, you know, oh, win, man, you'll win the thing. And so, <laughs> yeah, I would say like this has been a hard one for me. Lori, her energy was like nuclear, like it was free, it was endless, and it was a little bit dangerous. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you she changed the world, but I will tell you that I think she changed me mm -hmm. and, and a lot for the better. And so I miss her. And I, I just want everybody to remember her, Lori Chase Davis, and, you know, her two great kids and her husband and um, this cool, cool life she led that had such an impact on me. Anyway. That's a good, I mean, that's a great tribute. I, you know, I, I think like, you know, it, it's funny when you say, you know, she brought something unique to pensions. It sounds like really it was a personality. It was, uh, you know, and so that was unafraid of being, you know, kind of herself in a world that can be, you know, the ultimate conformist, uh, you know, environment. And Sloan, not to like be freaky here, but I would often tell friends of mine that you are my new Lori. Like, Aww. you know, we, cause we're, you know, here we are, we're trying to bring yep. comedy into the world of pensions and we're like giving each other notes on are the, is the, are these jokes funny? You know, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you for, for suffering through that. I do have some news and, mm. and, um, and I will note that that obituary, if that's what we call it, was not written by artificial intelligence because <laughs> <laughs> we have in the past had uh, read out those types of things. That was written by me. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so news. Organic intelligence. Yes, exactly. Uh, highly caffeinated, so maybe it's mm -hmm. augmented. But um, other people's money. It seems to me as the first news item that we really need to start calling a set of investment organizations, not SWFs, but OPMs, because they mm -hmm. exist to attract other people's money. I know I've mentioned this on the pod a few times, but just this week, two funds talked about the success they're having in attracting foreign capital. So huh. these are sovereign funds, but the wealth, the W in the SWF, isn't theirs. Hey. Indonesia announced this week that they have attracted $25 billion from overseas into Indonesia through their sovereign fund. Huh. And Egypt announced that they are successfully attracting capital inward. And so I think it's just a fascinating development to see these sovereign funds. No longer, you no longer even need wealth to set them up. You just need a viable ecosystem to invest into. And it becomes a conduit. Yeah. You know, that's I, I think someone needs to write some kind of white paper or paper about that, because, you know, that's a very important distinction that I think is lost on a lot of people. Like the, you know, mm. the difference between like the Mubadlas of the world that are you know, like big pools of capital akin to, you know, any other big pool of capital versus, you know, what is sort of a development finance or organization blended with, um, you know, kind of other, uh, you know, uniquely sovereign type characteristics. I wonder if there's an academic that we yeah, know. Yeah. Hopefully there was some guy. <laughs> uh, some guy. All right. I'll get on it. Um, <laughs> Not to it, assign you work or anything like that. Next news item, climate change. I was about to say for the climate change fans, those <laughs> Uh, for the people who want to stop climate change, huge fans of climate change. <laughs> <laughs> huge haters of climate change are going to be a fan of this next news item. 
Mm. Um, the SEC has said they are going to obligate companies to report on a variety of climate-related risks, including oh, how many climate-related risks um, can have an impact on their business, um, can get in the way of the company's strategy, or just simply affect their outlook. So yep. if climate change can affect your outlook, affect your outlook as a company, you are now, I don't know when this comes into effect, but at some point, going to have to report on it. Have you seen this news? I, I have. I'm actually prepping a, a comment letter to the SEC on it right now. Holy uh, cow. What do you got? <laughs> well, you know, okay. So I, you know, I, I guess a, a couple of different levels of commentary on this, right? The first is that like, you know, what is a company? What is their competitive position? If not a set of supplier relationships, right? And And I think that this opens the door to structured disclosure around supplier relationships that can help us diligence companies in new and interesting ways. Um, right. So, you know, I love the idea of having structured disclosure around that on climate. I'm a little bit worried um, when we start to think about scope three, which is kind of one of the big questions that the SEC left open in their draft rulemaking. Um, that like when we start to think about you know, imagine you are like a uh, a facilities manager or something like that. And you know that in two years, you're going to have to report on scope three emissions, which is like the stuff that your suppliers, you know, created the emissions your suppliers created in order to get the stuff to you. Well, your mom and pop vendors probably aren't going to be as able to provide individualized scope three climate analytics right. as the large guys. You know, so so my fundamental concern here is like, does this act as a pressure that pushes people to, into the, the arms of Amazon, basically, you know, who I'm sure will have a great reporting dashboard for you, you know, and away from like your teeny mom and pop office supplies company or whatever. Um, this is going to regulation crushing the little guy. Well, you know, I think that there are ways to promulgate. I mean, the the SEC did it did a smart thing where they said, like, look, we're not sure what we want to do about scope three yet. Um, you know, I, I think that there are ways to say, OK, well, you know, we could disclose on the aggregate size of our suppliers and stuff like that if we can't necessarily go all the way to full scope three disclosure. Right. Um, you know, so the I mean, that that really is my comment in brief is like they should, you know, create rubrics for people to give things that are not you know, exactly what they're asking for, which is, you know, scope three climate, you know, I would be perfectly happy to see instead of that, like, you know, the number of minority and women owned businesses that are in there, number of businesses that they're sourcing from with revenues under a threshold, um, you know, it, like in the absence of, you know, that detail, detail, detail um, that, that we, we really ultimately would like to see. Yeah. Sounds to me like we're going to need a little bit of, we're going to need that letter in order to have this new policy truly align investment practices with long-term sustainability. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that we're, you know, it's, a, I like the way that they handled it. They, they mm. put out the thing, they, they, they signaled an ambition, they signaled a direction, they invited comment, you know, um, and like, I, I, I felt like, you know, the, the door was open and, that, and that's really cool. My tweet about this which I do tweet from time to time. Uh, um, <laughs> at Sovereign Fund on Twitter. At Sovereign Fund. And the new at Stanford LTI. Oh, you made a new Twitter handle. Cute. And I'm going to pretend like it's not me doing it. So like <laughs> retweet my own tweets and tweet them back and then to like them. And it's like a vicious circle of awesomeness. It's an it's engagement factory. Baby. I think it's actually, this is what the Russian trolls do. I'm now getting a sense for what they do. They like, <laughs> like each other's shit, but it's all their own shit. 
<laughs> I mean, that's what that's what Free Money Podcast does on Twitter at Free Money for twenty sixty nine. Anyway, I had tweeted that I think what what would have been really powerful was instead of making it about reporting on climate risk at public companies at mm. public pensions, because then oh, we yeah. would the investors would be forced to align their practices with long term sustainability. And the reason I keep saying that little sentence is because our guest who is coming from the pre-distribution initiative, their catchphrase, which speaks to my inners, is how can investors align their internal investment practices with long-term sustainability? Doesn't that sound I mean, good? That, that sounds so good. Let's talk to her about it. I mean, like, I, like what are, when prepping for this interview, I, I had like a lot of very interesting things pop into my mind. No so kidding. really excited to chat with Delilah Rothenberg. And there she is. There oh she is. <laughs> Hello. Hi, Delilah. Are you okay? We were literally yeah, just I... saying your catchphrase. How can investors align their internal investment practices with long-term sustainability? It's like the bat signal up on the clouds in light. <laughs> well, I mean, I feel like uh, I'm just building on the great work that you continue to do oh. in this space. So, um I mean, at, yeah, really pleased to be here. As catchphrases go, it's immensely catchy. So we love to see that. I, you know, I guess maybe as a place to start off, like you could tell us what the heck redistribution is and how it relates to like income inequality and and termisms of various terms. Sure. Yeah. Well, um, thanks again for uh, having me here. And um, redistribution is uh, is a concept that. Uh, I think a lot of people aren't familiar with. So a lot of people think about redistribution when it comes to economic inequality, and they think about the importance of paying taxes or charity um, to address certain uh, social issues. Uh, and, and, and that's really important when it comes to leveling the playing field or emergency situations. But redistribution um, to address all forms of economic inequality really allows a system that is inequitable um, in the first place to perpetuate. And so pre-distribution is the idea that um, we're going to pay people for the value that they create and the risk that they take in the economy in the first place so that they don't, they don't have to become dependent on aid um, and redistribution through taxes or other wealthy people deciding what they're going to give charity to. And it, this gives people, um, it, it, uh, this, gives, this gives people, working class people, more agency um, and also more dignity, um, as opposed to just recreating cycles of dependency on aid. Um, and so pre-distribution is really important uh, for addressing systemic inequality. I love it. I, it's sometimes when we get the guests on and they start talking about what they do, it's like, this is why zero odd year. Like the, when, you, <laughs> when I hear about the pre-distribution initiative, we call it in my little world, like the base of the capitalist system. And we're trying to level the, you know, level the playing field. Mm -hmm. But like, it's, I think your initiative, and by the way, my new project at Stanford is technically called an initiative. So we're both running initiatives. <laughs> Everybody's got an initiative now. It's either an initiative or a project. Oh, yeah, no, I think, I think initiatives yeah. are the new project is my, uh, <laughs> yeah. is my take. But, but I just really appreciate the work you're doing. And like in reading your website and everybody should go check out the website, predistributioninitiative.org, um, because it is so similar to the work we do around like, like getting the measurement out there. No, you know, do what you want with the measures, but let's measure it so we can manage it. 
You've noted, and I'm jumping right into another question here, that the ESG investors tend to focus a lot on executive compensation, but then classic um, work that we do here on free money is we try to go up a layer. You are too. You're saying, but they ignore the asset manager compensation. Um, obviously, yeah. we agree with you that's an oversight, but like, talk to us about that whole situation and why you're focused on it. Yeah, yeah. It was very interesting to me. I was working in private equity around 2017, and I had worked across a number of different functions in private equity that probably led me to these, you know, uh, ideas, certainly with the help of some friends um, who raised some important questions along the way. So I was basically, I was working at a private equity firm and I was thinking about how can we address inequality, economic inequality in our portfolio companies. And um, to me, it seemed obvious that economic inequality was becoming a systemic risk that, well, that investors should pay attention to, or it always has been a systemic risk, but um, that investors were starting to acknowledge that. And um, then there's also the SDGs, and a lot of investors are saying that they're investing in a, in a way that's aligned with the sustain, U, United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, and there's SDG 10, which is on reduced inequalities. So it just seemed important to focus on this issue. And, um, and uh, I was looking at, can we pay workers in the portfolio companies a living wage? Can we help them build wealth by sharing some equity in the companies that they work for with them? Um, or can we narrow executive to average worker compensation ratios? And that last one is not something that's widely, you know, thought about or talked about in the private equity space. But if you go to public equities conferences that are focused on responsible investing or ESG investing, then it's not uncommon to hear about executive to average worker compensation ratios. And um, I ironically was catching up with a libertarian friend of mine who said to me, Delilah, it's great that you're looking at executive to average worker compensation ratios in the portfolio companies, but you work in private equity. And um, the executives of the major private equity firms, maybe not the smaller ones, but certainly the major ones, make way more than most corporate executives. And it doesn't take long or, you know, it doesn't take much research to know that he's right. If you look at the... Um, the executives at the largest banks, they're making roughly $35 million a year. If you look at the top executives of the largest private equity firms, they're making around $100 million a year or more. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's multiple executives mm -hmm. at the same firm that are making that kind of money. And so people will say sometimes, well, as long as you pay the workers a living wage, that's okay, right? Um, but it wealth inequality and, and that um, differential between the top paid and the lowest paid really matters because if wealth pools to very few individuals in the economy um, and they are in a position to uh, buy up assets like real estate and equities, then those few individuals are pushing up the valuations of those assets. And it becomes very hard. The barriers to entry to invest for other people become very high. And so uh, that becomes very problematic. And there's lots of research that shows that this kind of inequality is a systemic or systematic, as we like to say, um, risk uh, because of secular stagnation. So, you know, the marginal propensity to spend of the super wealthy is not as great as uh, those less well off. And so economic growth can stagnate. Um, there's also research by Professor Atif Mian and uh, colleagues, uh, uh, Professor Mian is at Princeton University, and he's done work, work with a number of different colleagues that have um, 
<laughs> oh yeah, you're wearing the sweatshirt. Oh, Sorry. That's, that's great. No, no, that's um small world. Um so I uh, so his research shows how um how the the excess wealth um, that's accumulating at the top can be used to facilitate um, debt financing of the less well-off spending, mm-hmm. um, which can lead to credit crises. Um, and uh, and there's there's just a lot of great research out there that shows how this can be detrimental to investors portfolios, diversified investors' portfolios. And so they should really care about this. I'm just thinking about you at a private equity firm, you know, sitting around going like, all right, so how do we align ourselves more with purpose? What we should do, we should really pay ourselves less. I I, like, you know, number one way to make friends in the private equity industry. Uh, (laughs) Hold on. Well, and then the the other thing that I forgot to mention is, is there's another argument for just making sure that everybody throughout the the capital markets value chain is well incentivized. So it's not just, you know, when you're at a private equity firm, you think about incentivizing the investment team, you think about incentivizing the executive management team of the portfolio companies, but what about the workers in the portfolio companies? And so, um, and so that was, you know, another argument for, for uh, doing this work. Um, if you, for instance, share carried interest uh, with workers in the portfolio companies, maybe you'll end up with a better net return for your investors. I love it. Before we go to the next question, there's, it's just, I'm hearing so many themes here that uh, have been like basically my life's work. And one of them is like, um, the whole net returns, you just said it, right? Like most of the big hedge funds and private equity funds are like, well, who cares how much we're making if the net returns are good, you should be caring about net returns. But like the problem in this space is the boards of directors of these pension funds they don't know what they're paying these hedge fund CEOs. And so I can remember going and I used to have this little shtick every time I'd go talk to a board, I would be like, okay, so the most highly paid pension fund executives are making two and a half million bucks a year. This was a few years ago. Um, what, and, and many of these people would have a hedge fund or a private equity fund manager. And I would say to them of a specific list, I'd say, how much more do you think the C-suite in that hedge fund is making than your C-level executives. And they would be like 10 times. And I'd be like, up. They'd be like, 50 times? I would be like, up. I'd be like, not 100 times. I'd be like, up. And they would be like, no, 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 no. I'd be like, it's a thousand times. It's a thousand times. Yeah. And this industry, and then their minds would blow. And then, the, you know, they would be fabulous. People would be crying. It would be like, you know. <laughs> resurrecting people with snakes. It was nuts. You know what I mean? But this, yeah. this whole space needs that transparency because it's the billionaire factory. Like this whole, like more billionaires get created on the back of pension assets than any other industry. Twice as many yeah. billionaires are managing pension assets than are building technology companies. Anyway, sorry, this is just so close to hope. I feel like God <laughs> stealing your thunder. Back to you guys. Well, no, but yeah. I mean, I, it's like, I, you know, clearly like there's a lot to talk about here, you know, and, and like, I, I think that, you know, this is one of these topics that, you know, you can understand it, you can sense it, you can summarize it, but you, as you keep coming back to the evidence, it'll keep hitting you again and again and again, how profound the observation is that there's like multiple levels of, I, I guess, weird skew that these inequalities create in the economy in portfolios and whatnot. I, you know, I'm curious, like how, what sort of things might people be overlooking 
as a part of like, you know, this, this thing, you talk a lot about debt and gearing levels, um, and demand for, for private assets. Um, you know, if like, if I've been, you know, if I'm a, you know, one of these pension guys making a meager two and a half million dollars a year, uh, and I'm trying to make my actuarial hurdle, right. And I go and say, okay, I'm going to invest in some private debt. I'm going to invest in some CLOs. I'm going to, you know, do all sorts of whiz bang stuff. What sorts of systemic issues could I be contributing to without really thinking about it? Yeah, I mean, I um, I empathize with uh, institutional asset owners because I think they're in a difficult place. Uh, so we published this paper the beginning of last year, so April of twenty, what was last year, twenty twenty one, called ESG two point measure. Was that? I said it was. I'm just blown away. I, I've lost <laughs> no. all notion of time. Sorry. Continue. I know. Me too. Me too. Absolutely. Um, so the paper was called the ESG 2.0, Measuring and Managing Investor Risks Beyond the Enterprise Level. And um, we, explore the, we explore two key themes in it. One is the institutionalization of capital um, and the consolidation of capital flows, which I'll explain in a minute. And the other is uh, the migration up the risk return spectrum for yield in a low interest rate environment. So on the first, capital has become very institutionalized since the 1950s. And now we have very large pension funds and insurance companies and sovereign wealth funds, um, endowments in the market. And uh, they are uh, so large that they need to invest efficiently or they feel pressure to um, invest efficiently. And there are a number of other factors going on, but um, they tend to invest in the largest uh, fund managers. And that's a trend that's um, becoming more intense as time goes on. Um, so actually across private asset classes in 2020, only 15.7% of the funds raised were in amounts of $1 billion uh, dollars or more, but they represented 72.4% of the total capital raised. And so, you know, that's just one data point. But if you look over the years, you can see that this trend is, um, is, is getting more, um, is growing. Um, so then you have these large asset managers um, who also have significant capital to put to work, and then they feel pressure to invest efficiently. So they tend to invest with larger and larger companies. And so the average deal size has also tripled over the past 15 years. Um, so I think one thing when we think about um, corporate consolidation, which is becoming a concern to many people in society and investors alike, is that uh, people think about people think about antitrust uh, enforcement or improved legislation um, and regulation to address corporate consolidation, but there might also be some uh, dynamics related to the consolidation of capital flows that is leading to corporate consolidation. And when you have so much capital chasing um, large deals, that tends to push up the valuations. Uh, and then that that becomes difficult to, uh, to have strong returns for new deals. And then there are incentives to layer on debt and engage in financial engineering to uh, generate returns for investors. And so, um, and so we're in a situation now where um, uh, non-financial corporate debt is at historical highs, leverage levels are at historical highs, um, uh, covenants are light, under, underwriting standards have gotten weaker. And, um, and, you know, this can lead to a potential corporate debt crisis mm -hmm. um, and, and uh, asset bubble bursting. 
And even before COVID, the IMF and the Federal Reserve and uh, Financial Stability Board were concerned about a potential corporate debt crisis, um, partly because of these trends. Um, and they were concerned that, you know, just a slight downturn, economic downturn or increase in interest rates could trigger that kind of crisis. And of course, we got COVID-19, which was way worse than anybody could have ever predicted. But what happens is when you have very um, weak or fragile, um, I guess is perhaps a better word, um, when you have this kind of fragility in the financial system, then if there's a slight issue um, that, that might trigger this kind of crisis, then the Fed has to step in. Um, central banks around the world you know, have to step in. Then there's a need to keep interest rates low um, and engage in quantitative easing in, um, in some cases. And that, of course, just incentivizes more risk-taking and more debt. So um, that's where we can end up in a potential debt trap. And, you know, all of this relates to ESG because one of the things that we're also looking at is when it, when it comes to investment structures, um, you know, we started with looking at fund manager compensation, but there are other issues at the fund manager level that uh, one, needs to pay attention, may, one needs to pay attention to from an ESG perspective as well. Um, so when we talked to stakeholders, they said, it's great, you're looking at executive compensation, but we're concerned that uh, private equity fund managers are, are over-levering um, portfolio companies with debt in the LBO space. And companies that have too much debt might not be in a position to offer quality jobs and quality and affordable goods and services. And so that's an ESG issue. But our ESG and impact investing frameworks like GRI and SASB and Iris Plus are primarily focused on the portfolio company level. They, in the portfolio company operations and their activities, it's not looking at the investment structure. It's not looking at fund manager compensation. It's not looking at leverage that the fund manager is putting on the portfolio company. Um, and so, and so that's the kind of stuff that we're looking at and we're trying to raise awareness among investors that these can be systemic risks and um, really make the, the, um, Financial materiality case, not not in the sense of, of these issues are necessarily financially material to each individual company, but they're financially material to investors' portfolios at a, at a systemic or systematic level. Um, and uh, and we're also looking at responsible tax at the fund manager level, which people are talking about at the corporate level, but not the fund manager level. We're looking at lobbying and political spend. So there are a lot of uh, issues to explore. I, I, it's. I, you know, cannot applaud harder for, you know, these looking into the debt hangover that private equity company, I, like I, you know, am an active manager. I, you know, in our equity strategy, we have a pretty big universe and I have a whole like private equity hangover category of the investable universe. And, and you know, the thing that I, I, I bring it up because the companies that are in this private equity hangover category are like dialysis companies. They're you know, they're like, it, you know, it, it's, it's it's like healthcare and like, you know, assisted li living facilities, stuff that really should not be, uh, you know, financialized and used in that way, um, winds up getting sucked up into this private equity machine, taken private, levered up, you know, the, the whatever capital is there get div gets dividended out. Maybe it meets a pensions return, return expectations or something, but undoubtedly that money winds up in Greenwich. Um, and what you're left with is a company that can't really provide the services that it needs to. And in some cases, this winds up having like a very literal body count in the form of like nursing homes that can't afford to pay people good salaries. Uh, yeah. you know, so kudos to you for making that connection. 
Uh, the cla- and to you. Classic paper on that, by the way, is private equity owned nursing homes prescribe more opioids. Yep. <laughs> That's true. Uh, yep. Yeah. They also uh, pre- prescribe more anti schizophrenics, uh, you know, for people, which is like, you know, the, the classic, like, well, this old person is being inconvenient. Let's, let's, you know, anesthetize them. I, I'm curious, Delilah, do you have like a car parked outside of your house, uh, like monitoring? Are you saved? Like, do you, yeah. <laughs> like, do, like, I, <laughs> yeah, you know, I thought that uh, industry reactions were going to be more like that when we first started, but then I realized, like, I'm not, I'm so, our operation is so small, like, we're probably not a deemed a threat yet, so. Um, you might want to get, also, get ready. Free money's about to, <laughs> we're about to pinch you on the radar. The free money effect, baby. But, you know, I, I think that there's one other there's one other dynamic that um, is really important for me to mention, which is that we don't actually think that um, most people in who are who are playing a role in this system in one way or another um, at the fund manager level, wherever they are in the capital markets value chain. We don't think that uh, most people are bad people. They're just simply responding to incentives in a system, in a culture that they have grown up in, that they have been educated in. And so we're trying to approach everybody with empathy. Um, I I read Steve Schwartzman's autobiography. He doesn't seem like, you know, a really bad guy to me. He seems like he uh, he has some blind spots about his negative impacts. And I think that, that sometimes if you take a very activist approach um, toward, toward, um, people that you have these concerns about, then uh, they can end up clamming up and not hearing the message and getting defensive. And so we're really big believers in trying to approach everybody empathetically and um, recognize the sort of the bureaucratic institutional nature of how the systems evolved and and trust that everybody um, has a good side to them and uh, will will ultimately find a way to justify making the changes that we're seeking to make. I love it. I love it. I feel like we might need a third member of the podcast team after today. Uh, You're just speaking the same kind of like vibe that we have. The funny thing here is I often play a little judo with those like private equity people by saying my goal is kind of to deregulate the space. And they're like, deregulate? What do you mean? I'm like, well, I mean, the regulation is fully tilted in your favor. You know, we, we've obligated these plans to go get seven and a half percent. We haven't given them the wherewithal to do it on their own. And so regulation is pushing, you know, actuarial rules, funding rules, all the rules are pushing them into your funds. And they can't do first time funds. They can't do second time funds because of their yeah. governance. So literally your industry is so profitable because of government. How's that feel? Yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean, the it's. I think that's been the biggest lesson for the pre-distribution initiative since we started. We thought that we could convince the asset owners and allocators to encourage the fund managers to change and have more regenerative investment structures, and that the asset owners and allocators or LPs in the private capital space, at least, would would see the incentive. Um, to push the fund managers to change, but actually they don't have very strong incentives. Um, there are a lot of reasons why LPs are re-upping with the largest fund managers and aren't 
are concerned about not getting into oversubscribed funds. And I do think that if uh, lots of people say, well, for the public pension funds, legislatures just aren't giving them the resources that they need to uh, have teams internally to uh, to do more direct investing and to invest in smaller emerging and diverse managers and more innovative investment structures. And I think that's very true. And I think it is one, of the, one of the things that I would like to do is to do more engagement with those legislatures um, and, and decision makers in other contexts other than public pension funds to say, here's the business case for why you should expand your team. I actually really want to do the financial analysis around uh, sort of the cost benefit analysis of uh, you increase the size of your team. So what what can you do with that? What, yeah. your, what might your expected return be? I, I need to think through the methodology of that and fundraise. Maybe, maybe that's something we can do together. Please, let's do it together. Uh, you know, Sounds C like a party. C it does sound really rad. Um, CEM benchmarking <laughs> does some of that. And, and mm -hmm. I think if I reverse, I don't know, seven or eight years of my life, I was doing a project on insourcing in large part because that was the moment coming out of the financial crisis that everybody was like, wow, like these guys were charging us so much money and we still lost so much. And can we do some of this on our own? It was kind of the palpable realization. Um, and people were trying to start managing money on their own, but they didn't quite have the systems and governance and culture in place. And, you know, there's a certain FBI inquiry going on in Pennsylvania right now which, you know, um, is kind of illustrative of like how far the plans could go in the name of reducing costs. But you have to marry that with governance and yeah. all the systems and risk and all that. Anyway, I think you could save oodles and the CEM benchmarking data shows that. Um, in fact, just last week, Australian Super came out and said, since they started internalizing in 2012, they have saved $750 million and they are wow. tied for first in Australia among all super funds wow. for performance. That's great. See, this is why we need to talk more often. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but that, that data is great to know about. And, um, you know, I knew that there are a number of large institutional investors who have... Uh, have come to the decision that that would be best for them. I'm sure that data has been very helpful and could probably be used more widely, um, which per perhaps we could be helpful with. Um, there was one other thing. Yeah, there was one other thing I was going to say about uh, direct investing by LPs or asset owners and allocators, which is that I still think that there are some policies and procedures and practices internally of institutional investors that would need to change to fully address the issues we outline in the ESG 2.0 paper. So for instance, we talk about um, benchmarking. We talk about more regenerative investment structures that uh, that funds fund managers could take, like revenue-based financing or redeemable equity or permanent capital vehicles or employee ownership. Uh, vehicles that transition companies to employee ownership or community ownership. And these are emerging uh, strategies that aren't fully developed asset classes yet, but it's so hard for anything to emerge and develop into an asset class when institutions have their sort of benchmarking approach and their buckets. And, you know, you have to meet this benchmark to be in the private equity bucket. And, you know, up until recently, there was no private credit bucket. And so 
when we think about what more regenerative investment structures could be other than the traditional leverage buyout, private equity and, and growth, which we're, we're a fan of growth, private equity, mm. um, our, our concerns are primarily with LBO. Um, but we do also have some concerns about venture capital and think that, that there are, they, we're not against LBO private equity. We're not against venture capital, but we think that they're not. Concerns. Concerns. But they're not appropriate for all the portfolio companies that they're, that they're targeting. And a lot of portfolio companies could have um, really great futures and be very value added in the economy if they had more appropriate financing structures, particularly after the global financial crisis, when banks are, came under pressure and they can't lend to as many small, medium-sized enterprises anymore. Well, capital markets aren't filling that void either. Um, and so so what can we do to sort of um, not only deconsolidate capital flows, but have more regenerative financing structures? And I, I think that um, some work needs to be done internally and in policies and procedures for institutional investors to to adjust that bucketing approach. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love that. You're speaking like, how do we align the capital with the, with first of all, the end investors who, who want to generate the return, but the companies in the most thoughtful way. So I think sometimes people forget that like the end investors, the asset owners are long-term. Most of the companies are, would be long-term, they're permanent capital and structure. It's the intermediaries that often drag that short horizon down um, for a variety of reasons. But look, I, I know we've kept you longer than we, we would. Um, this just got really away from me and Sloan, correct me, but I think this has been really fun, but I think we have one, I, more, yeah. one more question. Yeah, you're not going to correct the fun part, but I think I'm not. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> actually, I'm having I'm having a terrible time. Uh, <laughs> actually, let me correct you on that. This has been really bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's gone very quickly. Last, last <laughs> question. Um, because you're working on so many issues that are pertinent to our our audience. Like, what steps would you like to see asset owner, you know, the asset owner community taking on? Um, in the short term, like what, what are the key projects or focal points that you want these asset owners focused on? Sure. Um, so we have a four pillar approach to our work. So one is on transparency, standard setting and disclosure. And we have two projects, one with the, um, what well, was with the impact management project. Um, now it's with a, a sort of spin out um, organization called Impact Frontiers. And uh, that is looking at at investor contribution to um, to deals. So the impact management project has a framework for um, looking at, at portfolio companies and the positive impacts that investors can make um, on the portfolio companies, but they haven't really built in sort of understanding the risks that investors might cause. So we're building that part out, that part of their framework out with them. We're also working on a task force on inequality related financial disclosures with a few other organizations. and. Um, and that's to map out uh, what activities from the private sector, both at the company level and investor level, can contribute to systematic risks that we talked about and how do these systematic risks then impact the investors. Um, so that's something that investors can get engaged with. We're also looking at um, uh, benchmarking practices in collaboration with a mutual friend, Scott Kelb, at the Responsible Asset Allocation yeah. Initiative, and um, Paul O'Brien, who... Uh, is a former deputy CIO yeah, and now. a current trustee. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. So we're looking at, yeah, um, how can, uh, how, what role do financial, historical financial benchmarks play in asset allocation and perhaps inhibiting um, 
addressing some of these systematic risks that we're seeing mm. um, because they don't um, fully price in externalities, um, for instance. And if we're going to price in externalities moving forward, then we can't really compare our future returns to benchmarks of the past. You're not comparing apples and apples and oranges and oranges. So how do we deal with that? Um, and also looking at investment governance, which we're, we're doing with the Investment Integration Project and John Lukomnik and Keith Johnson, um, which we, we'd be very interested in collaborating <laughs> on. I was waiting for uh, AIM to show up on that list. I didn't know yeah, what was happening. I, investment governance. I know. I love we, it. Um, we, yeah, we, uh, we, we need to figure out how we're going to collaborate on all of this, uh, because there's so much, there's so much in common between our strategies, but, um, you know, really looking at how can investors account for not strategies, not projects, initiatives, um, but how can institutional investors factor in systematic risks that are, um, uh, that they need that they need to be thinking about for their long-term returns and how does that change their asset allocation strategies and that that goes beyond just making adjustments to the investment belief statement and investment policy statement but going through the whole docket of policies procedures job descriptions um TORs for committees uh to to make sure that the right talent and framing is there to address systematic risks I mean, that sounds like a lot. I, for one, await the better benchmarking with bated breath. Like, I, you can, I cannot tell you how much of a bugbear that is for me. I'm stuck to use it. Like, it, you know, as an active equity manager, like, basically, I have to compare myself to carbon intensive indexes because that's what everyone wants to see. Yeah. Right. But I, you know, I, I can't own like 70% of those stocks. Uh, you know, so from a practical standpoint, it's a meaningless measurement. Um, yeah. and like, I'm stuck writing, like I'm about to write a letter again where I'm like, here's, here's how I did relative to the, to the benchmark. I can't tell you enough how meaningless this is <laughs> yeah. in every possible way. So, uh, it sounds like everybody listening should get on your email distribution list to keep abreast of these various opportunities to dive in, yes. uh, at predistributioninitiative.org. Yeah. Yeah. That would be great. Thanks. And, um, you know, let's stay in touch and see what we can do together awesome. for sheezy for sheezy yep <laughs> i don't know what that means but i think it means it's, i think it's yeah. for sure i don't know yeah like it does mean yes it does mean yes uh thank you so much delilah long distance high yep. five thank you uh high five bye 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 all right take care hey she's wow. fabulous you know and that i just I, you say it every time we do a podcast i feel less alone do you know what i was gonna say like what i was about to say <laughs> Was I would do this if it was just me and you listening back, you know, like if we didn't yeah, have same. a single listener, like there's a great SNL skit where there's a podcast <laughs> skit for guys. Have you seen that one? <laughs> I've seen that Very one. good. If that, if that was the podcast tool that we were using instead of actually yep. recording ourselves. I would, I would still do this. It's so fun. <laughs> this, that, that skit is like where basically it's where you could take all your trash opinions and put them into a podcast so that they don't need to be listened to by anyone. Yeah, it's like it's, uh, it's literally a Fisher-Price podcast, right? <laughs> yep. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like, I, it just, I, I, I think that there is something about bucking a convention mm. in asset management that is just tiring because like, you know, the second you you go and you're like, oh, okay, well, you know, I'm going to try and go a little bit beyond common practice. Yeah. You know, it's not like you're just like 
it's not like you're at the level of having to reinvent Excel, um, but you know the the sort of soft infrastructure, the mental models, the way of explaining what you do to other people, um, you know, really needs to be invented again out of full cloth. And um, yeah, I'm like, I'm really pumped to be on the pre-distribution initiatives email list so I can keep abreast of all the great stuff they're doing. Um, before we move on, I, it's funny when we connected, um, I've been hearing about their work for a little while, but we, we really only connected around the private equity, um, transparency project coming out of the SEC, which they're commenting mm. on. And, and, and it was like this crack in the door that was like, wait, what else are you doing? And it's like, oh my gosh, they're like, you know, their initiative is almost the same as our initiative. You know, it's like. Uh, and they even were smart enough to call it an initiative like us. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah, all the real G's. I'm wondering if it. we should con- contemplate a free money initiative, you know? I mean, there's a lot of people I, like podcasts. That's a good point. <laughs> Not many people have you know, initiatives. Yeah, that's true. I mean, in order to make it an initiative, do we need to like send free money to like oh. people? But aren't we? That's true. That's true. That's yeah. I, I, mean, I mean, if we were to tally up the total value we've created with this podcast, it would be like tens of dollars. It would be in the hundreds of cents. <laughs> exactly. It would be, uh, yeah, difficult. I, I mean, I think that you, you need to move out of, you know, base 10 num- yeah, no. numbering conventions, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, you got to get into like base 16 yeah. in order to fully appreciate you know, what we do here. Yep. Um, anyway, it's time for uh, not only a flawless transition. Ah! Wow. Wow. Only a seven minute delay on that. All I heard was there. you groaning, making some weird Dude, my, <laughs> That's my pterodactyl voice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I didn't even hear the. <laughs> I didn't get to hear the sound effect. Is this the hard things? This is the hard thing. Yeah. What's What's been hard for you? So I have an admission to make. The hard thing this week was remembering to do the hard thing. <laughs> I, yep. and it's, you know what, we'll turn it into a real thing. You, for, I feel mm. like I forget a lot of stuff when you're building so much. Yep. If you don't keep a lot of lists and, and yep. you know, like, what was it? The checklist manifesto. I need to yep. like recheck my checklist for um, free money, maybe more than 20 minutes before we go live. That's yeah, definitely a good idea. Uh, I mean, I'll, that was my. I also need to do that. Twenty minutes before going live, I was like, "Oh shit, what what am I doing for these things?" You know, shit, shit, shit. I mean, my, my mine this week. Mine's kind of. I, I guess mine are all recently have always been like kind of good things that are like just stress uh, inducing. Um, hopefully, uh, we will be investigating. We'll be live on the Charles Schwab uh tamp platform before too long. that sounds like a big um, deal it's a pretty big deal yeah it means that any ria who uses charles schwab uh can you know will be able to use the invest vegan you know ethical growth strategy with their clients wow. right so um like and just kind of pipe it in and you know use it the same same way they would use any other kind of active mutual fund strategy um how many vegan uh, competitors do you have out there just out of curiosity so, you know, I, I, it's actually, it's really, really interesting. There's um, a vegan financial professionals.com has a bunch mm. of people who've been doing this since like before I was born, yeah. basically. Yeah. Um, you know, and they, they tend to be, they all, they all have their own distinctive approaches to uh, kind of veganizing investment management. 
usually they're stuck using financial products that have been made by other people, uh, you know, and sort of like pressuring them to do better on various things. It's engagement Um, rather than security selection. Yeah, exactly. You know, and also client uh, education, right? Mm. Like about what's possible and, you know, uh, and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, really just some great CFPs and, and, and other folks who are, who are doing a lot of good there. Um, there are also two vegan ETFs, VEGN, uh, which is a, a sort of like, you know, broad-based index that has a lot of tech stuff. And then there's uh, EatV, which is uh, more focused on like vegan food innovation specifically. Hmm. Um, you, you know, both are pretty distinct, are pretty different from what I do in terms of uh, like the, you know, the various frameworks and stuff, but um, there's definitely a lot of investment capital moving into the sector um, and a lot of like kind of latent client demand that I've noticed. Yeah. Um, you know, like pretty much my, like the, all of my discussions with clients go really, really well. Um, and I sense that there's a lot of demand from advisors to like, like this one. Like this one, yeah, like, you know, like, like Dr. Ashby Monk himself. Um, but so, so far, my clients hilariously are like mostly institutional investment geeks investing their personal money. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like, like this one. <laughs> yeah, so like, you know, it's, uh, it's pretty funny, actually, that, you know, I sort of thought it would be like, you know, people from like my food co-op who would be the majority of clients, but it's like listeners to the free money podcast. <laughs> yeah, which is why you got shark bait makes- out there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank God Which for shark bait. <laughs> thank God for shark bait, baby. Yeah. But it makes total sense. But, you know, it's like, it's hard to simultaneously do the asset management and produce materials for advisors to think about using it. Yeah. And like respond to, um, like I've started to get interest from like institutional hmm. folks who are like sending me questionnaires and saying like, hey, you know, but you know, that's all like, you know, they'll send you like a two page questionnaire with 15 long questions on it. You got to write that. Out. I don't know. Sounds like you're building a business and you might need to raise some funding. Ugh. I, yeah. You know, I guess, is that what people do at this stage? People, yeah. Yeah. So you definitely <laughs> have a product, you have a slight product market fit. You definitely have yeah, to be out there, but now yeah, you need huh. is to think about how you scale it. That's a good point. And so, but, you know, maybe um, we maybe we were breaking lots of rules by even talking about it. Who knows? We'll have to have shark bait later. But yep, yep. like, I think that that would be my advice to you is like, let's think about how we raise a little bit of equity financing for your partnership. But then again, maybe you don't want anybody on your partnership. You know, this is hard. I mean, you know, the right people. Who knows? Yeah, uh, yeah that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, no, you're welcome. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. We'll talk about that. Let's let's talk about that after Take the show. Take that off. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, before we get to that, we got the very important mm. uh, the Dear Ashby segment of the show, mm. which is where this is where we talk about, you know, whatever's on your mind, beloved listeners. And, you know, like just as a reminder, you can ask questions at this time and we will answer them, even if they are, uh, you know, in one of these cases. Pretty, pretty fun, pretty weird. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, so like, don't hesitate. Don't censor yourself. Ask uh, whatever's on your mind. Freemoneypod at gmail.com or just, you know, there's a there's a forum you can get to at freemoneypodcast.com. Um, you know, this is like, I think you, you were at Alt LA. I was. Uh, you know, last little bit. You know, I think this comes out of out of that conference where a lot of people were talking about the democratization mm-hmm. of alternative investing. And a lot of firms seem to be shifting into, quote unquote, asset gatherer mode. Yeah. 
um, right? These are like big private equity sponsors who are like starting to, you know, tap into retail demand, and, and, you know, and raise, raise bigger funds from, from broader groups of people. Um, would it make you nervous if you were a longstanding LP to see a firm doing that? What sorts of warning signs would you suggest mm. folks look out for that a firm's focused maybe shifting away from generating be a, like pure investment returns? Be a major red flag. Major. Yeah. Like, like yeah. so first of all, I'm not just talking about asset gathering because there are certain asset classes for which capacity is less of an issue. If you're BlackRock, you know, the, the size of the markets they're going after, they're obviously an asset gathering firm and there's probably yep. capacity in all those. Most of the alternative spaces have capacity constraints. So if in order to get bigger, you have to change your strategy. And anytime you change yep. your strategy by, you know, a lot of people in the venture community, by the way, they'll start out doing angel and seed deals, and then they'll go pro doing series A. Those are two different yep. jobs. Those are two yep. very different jobs. So I think asset gathering is like the step before um, your political career and two steps before buying a pro sports <laughs> team after you <laughs> failed at politics. So that, that's how I think about asset gathering and the alternatives. So, so based on that, like the Brid Bridgewater, you know, the guy, you know, is running for Senate, you know, we, we should expect this. Oh, shit. I mean, yeah. <laughs> they, they, I mean, they were gathered, gathering assets along. Some of those macro hedge funds, to give them credit, it, there's big capacity. Um, yeah, they're much more liquid. Yeah. They, you know, yeah, they're, they're, they're you know, playing they're like trading currencies. Like, you know, the size of that, those trades are massive. It's more like mid-market buyout. Like, yeah, they also have a thing called the fourth fund rule. Um, they, the sweet spot is your second fund because you you mm -hmm. don't have your billions yet. But when you get to the fourth fund, like, you're ready for your sports team and your political career. Mm. And you've lost. Yeah, that lost makes focus. a lot of sense. And so at that point, it's really about the next generation. And then you're really like diligencing the the um, GP's ability to transition authority from one generation to the next. That's the fourth fund. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And then you kind of are relying on them to solve questions around like attracting and retaining diverse staff, which, oh, yeah. you know, as we know, they're all great at. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like the ratio of time spent actually investing to like marketing is a great indicator, I think, of like the quality of an asset management firm. Aren't you having your uh, eyes opened? It's fun to actually talk to you about this because even I am having my eyes open to the challenge of building businesses in these spaces. I know it's, it's like, I, I mean, yeah, it's, it's really, uh, kind of fun. I'm, I'm really, I feel really lucky for the ability to like do it kind of out loud like yeah. this, uh, you know, because like the, I, you know, I don't think that it's a well-trodden path really. Um, you know, and like I, the, the nature of the demands on your time, um, change so weirdly, yeah. you know, and, and like, I, I think that there's just like, Ugh, unlimited things to say about it, but you know the 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 ultimate thing is that we all need naps. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Everyone needs a nap. Uh, um, the next question is about the rise of inflation and, and the associated rise in commodity and energy prices. Mm -hmm. This is a great. Mm -hmm. This is a great one. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's like relative underperformance by ESG funds over the most recent recent quarter. Yeah. Does this presage anything meaningful? Like the, the take for a long time, like in the COVID pandemic was like, wow, ESG is outperforming in this time of volatility, you know, but now the type of volatility we're, we're getting is, is quite different and ESG is lagging. What do we take from this, if anything? So part of me wants to just like blame the benchmark again, because 
always always a good strategy like we could go there we don't even know what what we're saying really but people are like mm, that's smart that's smart yeah. um so we blame the benchmark uh in part because i think esg has a, a different risk return profile and is going to like those risks are priced differently over time yeah. Um, I mean, the beauty of the fossil fuel industry, if you're investing in it, is they're still enjoying ex unpriced externalities, whether it's like no price on carbon, no gas tax in certain jurisdictions, let alone like actual subsidies of fossil fuels for energy security. Like there's a lot that fossil fuel companies are still trading on that like ESG indices are already kind of pricing in. Mm -hmm. So I guess like where my brain goes is like, and I don't have a solid answer. The ESG is like the folks are already trying to integrate these future externalities into portfolios because the expectation is 10 years from now, this stuff will be priced. But today yep. it's not. Yep. And so there is this like time machine problem that the ESG is sort of investing for the future world and the fossil fuel is investing for, you know, today and yesterday. And yep. so it's natural to see a disconnect between those two kind of benchmarks. I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about, but it, I, I, I think that's a great frame. Okay. I mean, like I, the, you know, I, I think like the, you know, the, if you look at the commodity returns that are characterized by periods of incredibly strong performance, followed by reversion to the mean, um, you know, and like, I, I guess, you know, when I saw this, you know, he these headlines coming around, I was like, well, you know, is that, you know, kind of a sell the news moment, <laughs> um, you know, because like, you know, generally by the time you get around to like banking on the continued upswing in oil prices, the upswing is behind. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, and you like, you see the spike and everyone's like, oh my gosh, the world has changed. And then, you know, more drilling capacity comes online and prices go down, um, you know, and like, I'm not making that call. I would never do that. Um, because I, <laughs> I do enough, <laughs> I do enough crap already. <laughs> um, but yeah, like it, the, it's hard to, it's hard to really, I mean, a quarter's performance is always going to be meaningless. Um, you know, but like, you know, with, you know, will inflation, you know, ruin ESG? I, nothing has so far. I don't see why inflation would. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's you a know. good question. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know enough. Yeah. I guess we'll see. The, all the inconsequences of inflation except that the, that's like the fed you know <laughs> yeah well like you know the fed you'd be like hey inflation is up oh fed's gonna kill us and then markets crash i mean for, from a long-term standpoint you know it's funny i have um bert malkiel's inflation beaters investment guide Ooh. uh that i you know and for anybody who knows bert malkiel he wrote random walk down wall street yeah he's a big advocate of keeping investment strategies simple keeping fees low he was my college uh, professor no way. Yeah, I took his class, investments. He was hilarious. I did not realize that. He used slides with professional wrestlers on them. Oh, man. And apparently he's a big uh, horse racing uh, fan. I, that could be true. That could be true. <laughs> the funniest thing about that is he, he's telling a story about a random walk on Wall Street. And then he's like, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. He's like, I do active management on my own account. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, but like, but he's Burt Malcolm yeah. and most of us aren't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, like, so, so you know, in his book in the 80s, he was like, you know, common stocks are usually the right move, uh, you know, to, to hedge that out. And, and I think that that's right. Like, you know, it, you know, in general, you're going to do better with common stocks than you are 
you know, in, in non-common stocks mm. or in preferreds or bonds or whatever. Um, you know, probably for emergency funds, it makes sense to use those like inflation linked series E bonds. Mm. Uh, if you're, if you're like a person who, uh, you know, has an emergency fund in cash, that's a material part of your financial outlook. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, um, that's a lot about inflation. Let's get to the most important question of this segment. Hit it. Uh, <laughs> so Kylie Jenner <laughs> and Travis Scott recently changed their child's name from Wolf because they quote, didn't think it was him. Under what circumstances would you change your children's names? <laughs> so I was like, at first wondering, like, <laughs> this child is literally not a wolf. No, but the kids name. Like, I know, I know. That and then, <laughs> but then, so I was at first like, are they just being literal? Um, any, uh, <laughs> like, we thought this kind. We thought we gave birth to a wolf. Yeah, it's not a wolf. It turns out. <laughs> we need better medical attention. Middle and medical advice. Um, like you know. So there's a there's a little bit of a crabby part of me, which is like, you know what, a kid's name, um feels like them when you spend a ton of time with them and mm -hmm. so i almost wonder if kylie jenner and travis scott by the way travis <laughs> scott just had that concert in texas where everybody died i think oh that's right um, i forgot about i'm wondering that. if they didn't yeah. quite spend enough time with wolf for wolf to feel like wolf you know what i mean <laughs> Yeah, no, I don't want to keep parental sense. pressure, but I'm just saying, like yeah. in my experience, the name and the and, and the being kind of begin to feel together. But that's not to say there aren't good reasons to change names. I think there are. Yeah, you see it a mm -hmm. lot when you're um, crossing borders. Um, myself, when I was living in Paris for three years, and my wife. So my name is Ashby, <laughs> Ashby, Ashby. Which everybody would ask me, "What is that short for?" Because that is H. B. And mm. so my name was, and my middle names, for those that don't know, are Henry Benning. So my name was Ashbay Ashbay Monk. <laughs> Ashbay Ashbay. And they'd be like, what are all the letters? Like, what's the HB and the HB stand for? And I would be like, no, my first name is Ashbay. Ah, S, Ash, you know? And <laughs> I'm the man so it nice was to so freaking confusing. <laughs> and then my wife's name, Courtney, Courtney means short mm -hmm. note <laughs> okay and so yep. like i have experienced what it and by the way the classic um in india and i've met somebody named mm. Ardik, which means <laughs> congratulations in hindu yep, yep okay yep great name hardik probably yeah. tough if you were a kid here with that name okay <laughs> so i think it's totally reasonable for human beings that are crossing borders to switch it up there's there's some great papers on that actually really <laughs> yeah yeah the economic payoff of name americanization if you if you let's say if you were named hardick uh and you change your name to like joel or something there's a payoff there's yeah there's a significant like double digit lifetime earnings payoff to to making that but your likelihood uh, of being a comedian goes way down because i think <laughs> being made fun of <laughs> As somebody who came with the name Ashby from Kennedy. Oh, yeah. I, I had a yeah, weird yeah, name yeah. growing up. People be, you know, you're from yep. Canada, you know. Uh, I think it makes you funnier because you just have to be faster <laughs> at responding to everybody making fun of you. Mm -hmm. You know, you live or die. Anyway. 
So, so basically, if you moved to France, you would consider it. Well, I would, uh, because I don't think like <laughs> it wasn't that hard to like explain. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it would be hard. Yeah. You know, I can imagine there are kids. So I don't understand the wolf one. I think wolf actually is a pretty rad name. Um, you know, it's actually um, there. There's a like a family friend growing up is this guy Wolf Nadelman. He was actually like the t- the um, one of the big characters in Liars Poker. It's the only person who went mm. on the record for Liars Poker, and thus the only person who was unemployable on Wall Street afterwards. He became a pediatrician in How California. How funny. A uh, million dollars, no tears. I love it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah it just, so, but like, yeah, the, uh, I mean, I, I always thought that was a really cool name, although he spelled it with two Fs, not. Well, there's always the Blitzer, you know? Wolf yeah, Wolf Blitzer. Blitzer. Wolfie Boy. Which has to Blitzer. be a made up name because it's too damn good. Wolf Blitzer. It's a, I mean, it's such a good name for a journalist. Isn't it? It's like uh, Max yeah. Boot. Oh, another yeah. Max like, Boot is great. name that you're like, is that really your name? Max Boot? Sounds like a, sounds like a pro wrestler. And he writes uh, about uh, like conflict. It was like too good. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's our naming <laughs> chat. See, yeah, I will answer your questions if you ask them. Add not, well be, well, well, well more than yeah. you actually want. A lot uh, more than you expected. I mean, but, you know, I mean. Garden tip. Garden tip. Garden tip. Here we go. We need to. We need to get Sharkbait back in here for like, you know, here's the guy. Here's your garden tip. Can you get, can you get somebody else? Like some kind of like oh, a, yeah. a hippie person to talk about the garden tip? Yeah, man. Hey, man, here's your garden tip. Yo. Hey. Hey. Maybe we just do it. We're pretty good. Yeah. You know what I mean? Okay, here's my pretty, tip. Yeah. I looked at, I, I did the work on this one. Because I have a Mason Bee house in my yard. And it is time for you to all go out and get a mason bee house. The benefit of mason bees far exceed um, the regular honeybees or bumblebees. Yep. They are 120 times more effective at pollinating because those other bees have to support their colony. Mason bees don't. They just keep Mm. bopping around across those flowers. And... uh, they're also not as aggressive as honeybees. So, like, if they're going to be flying around your yard, you don't have to worry about them. They're not going to come and sting you or bite you. Um, and so they're really good um, things to have in your garden. And there yeah. are little mace, cute little mason bee huts, which have these little holes in it. You hang them six feet off the ground. People then it's like people are like, what is that thing? And you're like, oh, and then you get to explain how cool you are with your mason bee house and say everything I just and- said. And they're literally like ten bucks. I have one too. Oh yeah, uh, they're like 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 the like, most fancy one you could get is thirty nine bucks. Like they are, mm-hmm. you know, you could get one for five bucks probably. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the and these solitary bees are really just remarkable at like you know at pollinating it. And you know, I mean, we always think about honeybees because that's like our extractive mindset as people. Right? Yeah, because it's like let's get what can we get out of these something. guys? Yeah, exactly. But like they're, they're keeping us alive with pollen. But what else? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like I wanna I wanna drink your food. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> you, you think about it, it's, it's little, good for allergies. <laughs> Slow, it's good for allergies. That's true. Local Local honey. Yeah, that's true. Uh <laughs> I mean, that's, tip? A, that's a my tip is that like, you know, as in investing, most issues with gardening are fundamentally about time horizon. Interesting. Um you know, so like at a time like now when, you know, most of us are thinking about what well, we want to get in the ground and stuff like that. Like, I, I think that there's a pressure to like 
have the biggest display possible as soon as like frost is the frost is gone here or like you know and certain certain people don't have to worry about that <laughs> um but like the you know I, I think it's much more important to ask yourself questions about like the program that you want to have in your garden like do you care about sourcing organic seeds for instance right um do you care about like you know having a good compost cycle up and running if you have things programs like that set up the failure or success of any individual plant is much easier to bear because you can be like oh well this dead plant is just more compost yeah um you know and so like i think as we get into the season it's important to foreground that kind of attitude um because it will help avoid tears later on down the line i love that and it's the classic thing also around the time horizon of gardening which is like the best time to have planted a tree is 10 years ago barring that is today you know? Yep. And, yep. and so it's like, these things take time and you need patience and you got to like plant a lot of seeds, um, expecting some of them to drop dead along the way. So understanding exactly. that time horizon and, and really plugging it all together. That's part of the fun of this gardening gig. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I mean, like some people wonder why we talk gardening tips on this investing podcast, but they, the two practices could not be more related. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you totally planned this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in no way did we just go, oh, crap, we're both really in the garden. Uh, All right, let's, talk, let's make, let's make no a podcast. In no way did too. we just have something in common and then want to talk about it. This is all investment related. We're freeing the confines of capital, whatever we're done. We unshackle capital. <laughs> I would like you all to know before we set off for this podcast that Ashby's glasses just fell off of, his, <laughs> off, off of his forehead onto his eyes in a very dramatic fashion as he talked about that. Uh, All right. We love you guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.